0: Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Senator Steven Fenberg, A Democrat who serves as state senator in the 18th district in Colorado, where he served since 2017. He also serves as the Senate Majority Leader. This is the first elected official that I've had on the podcast, and Senator Fenberg does not disappoint. We talk in this episode about his childhood and what led him to be politically active from such a young age. We talk about his college years and the friendships he made and this core group of people that ultimately started New Era Colorado, which is a leading voice for young people in Colorado politics and one of the most effective youth civic engagement organizations in the country. We talk about what motivated Steve to run for state Senate and ultimately to get elected. We talk about how he's found the job so far, what he's been able to accomplish, where he's been spending his time and why, as well as some of the most impactful things that he thinks that they could do in the state to combat climate change looking forwards, but also at the federal level, the role of the federal government, the stakes in the 2020 election, and overall some ideas for how to better tune the machine to help our democracy run smoother in general. Senator Fenberg, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
0: This is our second take because we got two minutes in and I forgot to hit record. And it's a bummer because we had such an authentic, unscripted, warm, humorous open. I don't know how we're going to replicate it this well, time. Well,
1: now, now we know each other a little bit. <laughs> Broke the ice.
0: That's true. So it, the episode's only going to be that much better because of those special three minutes.
1: Right. That no one will ever know about.
0: But what we did talk about in that open that didn't record is I was saying how you're the first elected official that is coming on the show. So you're very brave. uh, And you were saying that actually you've experienced real bravery, but it's not coming on this little dinky podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't say dinky. I don't think those are my words. But but, but, uh, yeah, I mean, look, this issue that we are facing is, uh, I think, at the core of it, a political issue. And uh, elected officials, policymakers need to be part of this this conversation for solutions because they have to be part of the equation. And I would hope if if there are future politicians or elected officials that are considering coming on the show, I think I think they would quickly realize that they have probably been in more adversarial, opposition situations in this one so i'm excited to be here i'm excited to be the guinea pig and hopefully many many more folks follow me after
0: and it it seems like if there's any guinea pig guinea pig to talk to from an elected official standpoint you're kind of a safe place because when i look at into your background prior to the show i mean you're not a career elected official you you kind of came up the ranks looking a lot more like probably a lot of the other guests we've had on the show than your typical politician
1: yeah, you know, I, I think about it all the time. I I sort of straddle two different worlds. I really think of myself as an activist or someone, kind of on the outside pushing the people on the inside to do more and to be more bold, um, especially on issues like climate. And you know, that's my background. I come from the nonprofit management world and sort of activist world. Um, I my degrees in environmental policy. That's kind of where my passion has always been from ever since being a, a kid. But now I'm in this weird position where I go to work every day and I put on a suit and I go to the Colorado Capitol and, you know, I I play the role of senator. And, you know, in some ways I feel like I'm sort of, I've got one foot in both worlds, but it's actually a place I'm comfortable being. I I sort of like being the politician person that doesn't take himself too seriously, but also someone that very much is pushing to do big things rather than just create a political career for myself.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And I guess two things I'd love to to know more about are, so when you were in undergrad, you were very politically active. And so I'd love to know just if you go back in the Wayback Machine, how that came about and when that came about and and what the first step was that led to that. But then similarly, I mean, you've been very active in terms of climate activism. So I have that whole same set of questions in terms of You know, how you came to care about that, when you started to care about that, why you started to care about that, and how that manifested as well. So, whichever order you want to take it, those are both fascinating topics for me.
1: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you know, being in this line of work, people ask me all the time, like, how did you get into this? Like, what made you want to be uh, in politics or whatever? And, you know, I, I don't have a very specific, tangible sort of here was the aha moment, but I guess what I could say is, it's just who I've been for my whole life. It, I knocked on my first door for a political candidate at the age of seven. You know, I would go door to door with my mom and volunteer for candidates we cared about. And, you know, I, I think I pretty much grew up with the noise in the background being my mom yelling at the television. <laughs> um, so it's who I am. It's, it's in my genes. It's in my blood. It's how I was brought up. And I think, you know, I, I just always had this sense of wanting to make sure my life was committed to creating justice and moving in, in what I see as a, a better direction for the world. And it's kind of one of those things that you can never solve. You can never get to a place that's, that's perfect. You can never create a society that doesn't need to improve more, but you can dedicate your life striving towards that. And I think at just a young age, that's, that's just what I knew I wanted to do. When I came to college, it's, it's really, so I, I'm originally from Ohio, from Dayton, Ohio, and to be honest, it, there wasn't sort of that culture or that environment for me to to really be who I wanted to be and the the work I wanted to do. And then I came out to Colorado, I spent a bunch of summers out here, backpacking, sort of just like falling in love with the, the state.
0: Can you just touch for a minute? So what was it about Ohio that made those opportunities <laughs> not, not exist?
1: Well, have you been to Ohio? I'm uh, <laughs> no, just I, kidding. I,
0: I... <laughs> I I think I I I I did a layover there on an airplane, if that counts.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> um, well, you've probably seen it then. No, I'm just kidding. I I mean, Ohio has a special place in my heart. Obviously, it was a great place to grow up. Yeah, I actually think Ohio is an incredibly interesting place because it it is one of the states that really I mean, the cities in Ohio built America in the way that we know America today. NCR was based in Dayton. The Mead Corporation. General Motors had a a major plant there. You know, the Wright brothers are from there. It is a place of innovation and a place that I think in a lot of ways had this incredibly important uh, set of people and innovations that charted the course of American history. But now when you go there, it feels a little, in some areas, it feels a little dead. And I say that with love because it's where I come from. And it's in a lot of ways my home still. But, you know, it is kind of, in some ways, the, those cities are the epitome of, of a world that has moved on, but the city and the physical structures themselves have sort of stayed what they were. And, you know, after the recession hit, the GM plant closed, and then the opioids just came in by the truckload. And frankly, if you go back to Dayton, Ohio, now it is a struggling place that's, that's frankly quite sad. And growing up, maybe it wasn't that bad, but but it wasn't a place where it felt like there was a lot of hope, and a a place where people were working together to create positive change. I think in a lot of ways, people were just trying to get by, and I think every city is different that faces these types of downturns and depressions. But but in in a lot of ways, that's just that's where I was, you know. And there was a lot of struggle, and some places react by organizing and mobilizing. I think generally speaking, where I come from, that, that wasn't where people went. But there, there, you know, we could probably talk for days and days about sort of the evolution of a city and its community and how it fights to survive. But, you know, when I came out to Colorado, I think in a lot of ways I saw the, the complete opposite, where I, I saw people that were active. I saw um, a natural surrounding that was not only gorgeous and incredibly diverse and different from where I grew up, But something that people respected, and I think in a lot of ways years ago, people spent the money and had the foresight to preserve and to understand that that is the asset for Colorado, our natural surrounding. And yeah, some of that means natural resources and money, but some of it just means preserving it for the sake of preserving it so future people can enjoy it. And I think it was just a very different culture. And when I came here, I think I I really just sort of immersed myself in that and wanted to just eat up everything I possibly could. And so I was involved in a lot of activism, a lot of politics. You know, I kind of just jumped on whatever campaign I could find every single day. I was involved in anti-sweatshop work. I was involved in environmental work and climate work and human rights uh, work. I ended up being in the student government, which is as nerdy and dorky as it sounds. And, you know, it it was a pretty eye-opening experience because as a young person, especially one that came from a place where I felt like I didn't have much of a voice I felt like for the first time in my life, I had a seat at the table and I had some power and I, and I was able to put together the tools to use that power effectively. And that was a huge learning experience. And when I graduated college, I think I was a little naive and I thought that's just how the rest of the world was going to be from that point on. I sort of found my path and realized that once you're out of college and you're in the so-called real world, it's different again. And you no longer really have a seat at the table as a young person. You were sort of expected just to get a job and fall in line and sort of be, follow that path and be that part of society. And so, you know, I wasn't satisfied with that. And and so I created an organization with some of my other friends in college that basically meant to be a vehicle for young people to have that seat at the table to shape uh, their communities and to shape the state that they're inheriting. And that organization is called New Era Colorado. And I started it with, you know, my good friend, Joe Nagus, who's now a congressman. Uh, my friend, Leslie Harrod, who's now in the House of Representatives in Colorado uh, with me in the legislature. And my other friend, Lisa Kaufman, who is the chief of staff to the governor here in Colorado now. So the four of us were college friends. We wanted to do some big things. We started this organization. I was the executive director for 10 years and oddly enough, we are all still very good friends and we work together just about every single day. And it's been a lot of fun. It's, it's been a weird ride, but it's exciting to, to sort of look back at what we've done, how we were just sort of stupid kids for a while. And now we're oddly sort of in charge of things, which is a little bit of a scary thought. <laughs> but I think also just shows the culture that Colorado has and how it can be welcoming to people that want to jump in and, and be helpful and be part of the
0: solution. And can you talk a bit about the work that that organization did and does?
1: Yeah. So New Era started, as I said, it, it's really meant to be a, a vehicle for young people to be involved in state-level politics. So we did all kinds of things. I mean, we made tons of mistakes, right? We, did, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We were, we were starting a nonprofit entity and had never really started anything before in our life. So we made a ton of mistakes, but we learned a ton real fast and we were scrappy, and we sort of, you know, treated it as a startup, but it was a nonprofit with a mission. And our goal was to make sure young people were a a very serious voting block, and that their issues and the values and the things they care about were at the forefront of Colorado politics. So we registered voters, we engaged them, we turned them out to vote, we educated them on what they were voting on. We've, uh, to date, registered hundreds of thousands of young people to vote in Colorado. So I think very easily... One could say it, it has shaped uh, Colorado's political landscape over the last decade or so. And I think it had a very big impact on elections, whether uh, candidate electoral elections or issue-based elections like ballot measures and things like that. So it's had a huge impact. It's, it's the largest state young voter mobilization uh, organization in the country now. I left, obviously, a few years ago, but it's kind of grown and it's bigger than ever and it's super successful right now and And really, is sort of like the core of how I really, truly understood you know the halls of power and how change can happen.
0: One campaign that I read about that it'd be great if you could touch on, and that's around the the video and the excel energy uh, stuff. but then I guess secondarily, if there's any other. Work or, or campaigns that you did that are illustrative of the things you're most proud of during your time there it would be great for you to touch on those as well.
1: Yeah, so we had this campaign that we just sort of stumbled upon in a way. Um, the the city of Boulder, you know, it's a progressive city. People think of it as a place that's that's kind of a hotbed of environmental activism and, and thought. Was at this crossroads where their franchise was up, their their contract with the big utility was was up for renewal. And in Colorado, every every state's different. But in Colorado, a city basically has two options. They can re-sign with the big monopoly utility, and there's only one, and it's Excel Energy here, or they can be a municipal utility and run their, their own electric utility and make all the decisions for themselves. 29 cities have already become electric uh, municipal utilities uh, in Colorado, and there are thousands across the country, including you know Los Angeles. But very, very few cities have made that transition in modern time. So in Colorado, most of those happened, you know, in the early 1900s, when the the landscape was just very, very different. And so we're most cities are sort of entrenched in this problem, the situation where they they're only allowed to shop from one uh, vendor. And that's the big utility. That's that state law. There's no competition and that utility isn't really allowed to provide one city something different than what they provide the other city. So it's this captured market where no one really has any freedom and and there isn't any normal consumer choice. So we made the weird, bold, crazy decision to say, maybe we should actually be one of the first cities in a long time to break off and show how the city has control of its own destiny what it can do on, on the energy and the climate side of things. And, and not because we thought Boulder becoming hundred percent renewable would change the world or solve the climate problem. We're a pretty small town, but because we wanted to be sort of a laboratory to set an example and to learn to be able to export those types of experiences to other cities and other, other areas for policymakers to learn from. So we ran this campaign to break off. Obviously Excel was not happy about that. They did not want to lose the city of Boulder as a customer there, um, I think it's about thirty million dollars a year that they make just off of the city of Boulder, again, which is a pretty small population base. But more importantly, they didn't want this to be a trend. They didn't want this to sort of be the first domino uh, of other cities breaking off. It was a big threat to them. So they spent a lot of money against us. We won uh, just barely. It was sort of a David versus Goliath type of fight. We were just, you know, scrappy young people that were organizing this grassroots campaign versus a very large campaign invested, you know, by this utility. And we barely won. We, we put together a, a, a campaign video just sort of like, you know, with some friends. It went viral. We became this sort of like moment in time where a lot of people around the country were watching us and watching our success and rooting for us and donating to us and, and just helping where they could. We had people literally coming in from around the country to volunteer uh, in the last couple of weeks of the election. And so we, we pulled it off. It's been uh, something that after we won, we've had many ups and downs. Uh, it's, a, it's a long, arduous process to break off from a big utility. But it's actually moving in the right direction right now. And I think we'll be successful in actually pulling the plug and flipping the switch on, on having a municipal utility. Um, I will say Excel Energy is one of the better utilities out there. I would argue it's kind of a low bar, <laughs> but they are at the top. Um, in terms of being responsible and, and having a cleaner energy portfolio. But again, this is such an existential crisis. I don't think um, uh, a utility that is towards the top of a, of a pretty weak list is good enough. So I stand by what we did. I, I would do it again. And, and, and it's exciting to watch sort of the progress that's happened and the stories that have come from it. So that's one thing I'm super proud of and, and something that I think made me realize how big of a problem Uh, how big of a political problem this is, uh, climate. There are just a ton of interests involved. There are people that want to do the right thing. But frankly, sometimes it's it's not even that they want to make money. It's that they are so invested in this old system that it's incredibly difficult to change midstream. And that's where the utility sector is. I think the utility sector in some ways is agnostic. They just want to keep doing what they do. They're kind of agnostic about where the energy comes from but they're so invested in the old way of of making energy, that they can't pull out now without losing tons and tons of money. And so there are structural problems that I think I woke up to in that fight that I take with me now every day and all the different smaller fights that I have on a daily basis.
0: Well, I feel like this discussion is at a fork in the road because, I mean, there's two different important topics I'm dying to get into. One of them is you mentioned that there's this existential crisis, and I'd love to spend some time either now or later in the discussion talking about what type of crisis it is, it is in your view, and you know from your seat. And I know you're not a scientist uh, in the lab, but just like what do you see, and and how how have you framed the problem in your mind? But then the second whole thread, which is you started out this ideal, uh, you know, idealistic grassroots activist that's had some real successes and is it, and and it's a real beacon of hope, but then how did you find your ways into, you know, the Senate and, and how do they let you in given that it's such a, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a, it's such a weird time because there's people like you that are this like beacon of hope that are fighting for everything good and just. And then there's also just a bunch of crap um, that that's kind of uh, mucking the waters and making it harder for us to move forward as a society and make progress. So Those are very different directions, but I think they're both important. Where do you want to start?
1: Well, um, I guess maybe we can jump into sort of my experience in the Senate. And then maybe get into some of the policy stuff.
0: Yeah. So how did that come about? Like, what first gave you the idea? What was the first move? How did the campaign go? Like, any color around how you got into the seat you're in would be fascinating.
1: Yeah. So, you know, as we've been talking about, I I was working at this organization. I was was running New Era Colorado, and and its goal is to engage young people in the political process. And after about 10 years, I realized I was sort of the oldest person around in the office. <laughs> and, and it was sort of this realization where I was like, oh, huh, maybe it's time for me to move on. Maybe I'm like the creepy old guy that just like is hanging on still. And, you know, so I, I kind of knew that I wanted to do something different and and I wanted to make sure New Era was in a place where I could hand it off in a way that it would, it would continue to be successful. So it wasn't like I just wanted to walk away, but I wanted to sort of like close that chapter for my life, but open it up for other people to be able to continue it while I moved on to something different. And I wasn't totally sure. I mean, to be honest, I never thought I would be the one to run for office. I always thought I was more behind the scenes. And I don't think I would have run if I was in a district where it would have been this tough kind of swing district type of race. I work with those people. I work on those campaigns pretty much every day. That's kind of my job is to help those types of people get elected now. But it wasn't the kind of life I wanted for myself. I don't see myself as someone that needs to, that is able to walk that line and kind of constantly be moderating what I say um, and thinking about every vote that I take and how it's going to impact my next election. So I wouldn't have done it if I was in that type of position, but, you know, I live in Boulder. And I had this moment where I realized, okay, it's time for me to leave New Era. I'm the only guy with some gray hairs around here. I gotta, I gotta do something different. I want to continue on this path, and I want to have an impact in Colorado on state level politics and on the issues I care about. And uh, at that point, the person that ran, that that held the Senate seat, was retiring. We have term limits in Colorado, so he was forced to retire after two terms. And you know, just about everything in politics. I think it's like 99% timing and this seat was open and it was uh, an opportunity where people are asking me to run for it. And I had to sort of rethink that that whole notion of like elected politics isn't my thing. And I had to, to sort of train myself to be like, maybe I could be the person that is in that office, not just the person that is pressuring the person in the office. And so I, I decided to jump in. And it was uh, a pretty big, you know, life decision. It's a weird thing to do to yourself, to put yourself in that position, to open yourself up to those attacks, to essentially go around your community and ask people if they like you uh, and ask them to, to support you. It's a, it's a kind of an unnatural thing to do to oneself, but it was a lot of fun. It was a huge growing experience. And I, I actually ended up not having a primary and that is really the race in a safe democratic district is the primary. And so I, I, in some ways was lucky, in some ways got off the hook. Uh, In other ways, I think I was handed this immense responsibility because of that. And I had a general election, I had a Republican opponent, but it wasn't uh, a super difficult race. Uh, I won and, and immediately realized, okay, my job is to help other people in more vulnerable districts to get elected so we can make progress. And you know that's what it's about. Like I can be impactful. I can I can give a speech on the Senate floor. I can introduce bills, but it's only going to be effective if I have colleagues that agree with me, and hopefully add up to a majority of my colleagues that agree with me. So I immediately pivoted and and worked to to help get a majority. The Republicans had the majority at the time. Obviously, I don't think this should be a deeply partisan issue, but we've seen that it is. Um, so I wanted Democrats to get the majority while I was there, so I could be more effective. That was 2016. And I, I think just like everyone else in America, pretty much, I thought we would wake up the day after election day with a very different country uh, from the top on down. And it's same thing happened here in Colorado, where I thought we would, we would regain the majority in the state Senate, the one chamber that the Republicans held, um, but we, we were not successful. We lost it by one seat. So the next two years uh, in the legislature before the next election, you know, I was in this situation where I was representing a very progressive community that wanted bold action on things like climate, but I didn't have the majority votes to really get big things across the finish line. So I immediately had to pivot once again and say, all right, well, what do I do? How do I use this situation to get as much done as possible, or at least, to position us and myself to be effective when we do get the majority back. And so I spent two years basically building relationships with Republicans and with my you know Democratic colleagues that I felt like I needed to get closer with and build trust. And I got some stuff done. Obviously, it wasn't everything I wanted to get done right away, but we got some energy policy done. I worked with some Republicans where we could agree on a few things. And we got some big things done. And I feel like I sort of gained a lot of friends and, and respect across the aisle and on my side and then basically gave up my life and committed everything I could to get the majority back in 2018 and we were hugely successful and we got the majority by two seats. So now we are in a position where we've just had our past uh, our first session with Democrats in charge of not only the Senate but of the House and we have a new governor who's wanting to do a lot on climate. And so we have a trifecta of essentially of a pro-climate majority. And we wanna use every minute we've got while we're in that uh, position to move the ball forward significantly. And this past year, we've, we've made huge progress on, on climate um, and many other issues. I mean, climate obviously is only one of the big issues on our agenda right now, but, but we've had a hugely successful year. We are uh, just about to go into our second session of this majority. And there's a whole lot more to get done. So we're looking forward to getting back at it.
0: Well, I have a lot of questions about that, but maybe we can switch gears temporarily and just talk a bit about the nature of the, the existential crisis that you mentioned about climate. So from your seat, how do you think about the problem?
1: Well, I mean, in some ways, it's the way I look at the problem is really what we need is bold action at the federal level but we're not getting that. So um, that means we have to, you know, kind of, I guess a theme here is we need to have a plan B, (laughs) Uh, just about everything, not everything goes according to plan. And so if we're not going to tackle this problem at a federal level, and I would say, it'd be one thing if we're just not tackling it, we're actually moving backwards at a federal level, and that's incredibly damaging. So if that's going to be the situation, we have to be extra aggressive at the state level in the states where we can be. And I think Colorado needs to be one of those states that's leading the way. And so really, that's, that's where it comes down to, is the federal government's not acting. It falls on the states. Our federal, our, our government, our country was sort of set up to allow for that, right? We have these small little laboratories. We have 50 laboratories of democracy that are supposed to sort of debate, argue, create solutions to problems that other laboratories can learn from and develop and sort of tweak to affect their state. Uh, and hopefully we either create a, a movement across the country of those types of solutions and or eventually it goes to the top and the federal government finally gets finally wakes up and gets a backbone and takes on the fight. But the last thing we can do is just wait for the next federal election over and over again. We have to be doing things on a state level. Obviously, we can't solve this on a state level, but we can make a whole lot of progress and change uh, the landscape, um, I think, pretty fast. That, that's the other thing about it on a state level. You can do things faster than you can at the federal government. Um, the federal government is obviously just a big, slow-moving beast. States are much more nimble. Um, and I think we need to use that to our advantage in these states where we can make progress. And that's what we've been doing in Colorado. And so the way I look at the problem is it is it is our responsibility as a state to take on this fight at this moment in time. And what do we do? Well, we need to prioritize what, how we take it on. I mean, we need to look at, frankly, the biggest sources of emissions, the biggest problems, and we need to attack them. And we need to do that one by one, and we need to do it diligently. But we have to do it in a way that is not just cleaning up our backyard, is not just cleaning up the air in Colorado, but hopefully doing it in a way that can be replicated in other states. Because I think that in a lot of ways is the real challenge. It's one thing to shut down some coal plants in Colorado. It's a whole other thing to create policies to create um, sort of a, a landscape that can be replicated in other states and have a much bigger impact than just Colorado.
0: So putting aside your job and even the, the job of government overall, if we're just talking about the problem itself, when people frame the problem as we have 12 years to act, for example, did you agree with that framing? Is that the framing that, that you've got in your head as well?
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't think we have 12 years to act. I think we have to act now. We have 12 years until we have an uh, absolute disaster, <laughs> right? I mean, we need to act now. This is absolutely an existential threat. It's a human threat. It's a it's a worldwide threat. It's not just um, something that is impacting, impacting us as humans, but it's impacting the entire world, the entire globe. So it is serious. It is something that we have to act fast on. I mean, I mean, it's, and, and it's really difficult and frustrating when so many of us believe this in a fundamental way. But then there are people that don't even believe or acknowledge that it's occurring. Or some people acknowledge it's occurring, but don't think we're the problem, and therefore we're not the solution.
0: Do they really believe that, or or <laughs> or is it more is it more just that they they're not comfortable with any of the proposed solutions on the left, and therefore they just deny the problem outright as as like a an impulse reaction, like defensive. I mean, I don't know.
1: To be honest, I think some of them know that there's a problem, but they realize politically they have to oppose the solutions. Some of them, I think, genuinely don't believe there's a problem.
0: Them being uh, Republican elected officials?
1: Yeah, largely. But, you know, I, I don't, you know, in some ways I really would, I prefer to shy to not say like, yeah, Republicans are the problem. But it's real hard these days to, to not say that. <laughs> I'll, I'll be totally honest. I mean, like, it's from the top on down, there are not very many Republicans willing to take this fight on. And that's a, that's a big problem and maybe the problem in moving the ball forward and coming up with solutions that can last. But yeah, I mean, I, I've built relationships. I, I consider many of these, these my Republican colleagues, friends. Um, they're who I spend just about every day with, right? Um, and I've gotten to know them. I have conversations with them. I, I go out to dinner or get a beer with them. And a lot of them actually don't believe it. They think it is kind of a hoax. Some of them think that it's just scientists run amok and it's group think, and they all just like quote each other, but they haven't realized that maybe they're wrong. I don't understand how you can go home at night and truly believe that, but I do think many of them do. And then there are some that know there's a problem, but just don't see any of these solutions as roles that the government should be playing.
0: So given that it is such a there's so much science involved in terms of understanding the problem and then understanding what levers are going to be highest impact in terms of solution. And I'm not a scientist. You're not a scientist. I make podcasts, but you are actually making policy or proposing policy. And so where do you and your colleagues turn to for the education on the underlying knowledge that's necessary to know which solutions to be championing?
1: I mean, that's where you just have to lean on the science. You have to find trusted sources. In Colorado, we we have, I think, per capita the most climate scientists in the country. So we have a lot of people that care a lot about this issue and really study it and know their things on it. We have the federal labs, NOAA, NREL, NCAR, that we can rely on and that do play a role in the policymaking process here. And so that's that's what we got to do. And not only rely on the science, but we have to also look at Essentially, the math, right? Like, if we need to get to X, what do we need to do to get there? And if you look at a a, a pie chart of where all of our emissions are coming from, you just got to go one by one and you got to start with the biggest chunks of the pie. And I think that's what we've been doing. And, And that's not because the smaller pieces aren't important. It's, you know, if we're in an emergency situation, which I think we are, you have to treat it like an emergency room and you have to triage. And you have to say, well, the guy with the bloody nose can hang out for a while because meanwhile, we've got a gunshot wound over here and we got to fix that. And the gunshot wound is our electric supply. It's our, it's our coal plants and, and things like that. And once we get those under control, once we get that person stabilized, we have to move on to the smaller fights that are in a whole just as important, if not more important, but will take longer and will be more, uh, frustrating to solve one by one. So we have to start with the big pieces. It's like, you know, Willie Sutton asked was asked why he robs banks. And his answer was, that's where the money is. We have to go after coal plants. Why? Because that's where the carbon emissions are, are greatest. And then we have to move on down the line until we get to individuals' cars uh, and people's homes and, and how they're heating their homes and things like that. In the mix, probably somewhere in there in the middle is, is uh, things like oil and gas. As an industry, it emits huge uh, amounts of emissions in Colorado, but it's harder to tackle. And they are literally hundreds of thousands of wells in Colorado. And we need to go after each and every one of them. But it's much easier to start with the five coal plants, Rather than the hundreds of thousands of wells, and and that doesn't mean you can only do one thing at a time, but it does mean you have to sort of treat it like an emergency and prioritize things and make sure we are stopping the bleeding from the major wounds first before we we try to to you know make the perfect the enemy of the good.
0: The tricky thing for me is, I think conceptually, of course, we want to reduce emissions, and then conceptually whether we can or we can't with what we've got we we want more breakthrough innovations we need to pursue carbon removal because why wouldn't we given how far behind we are and how aggressive the timelines are and how much you know entrenched interests and inertia are inhibiting our ability to make progress but for example should you employ carbon capture at point of emission in a coal plant and the proponents would argue that of course you should because like it or not we're going to be you know burning coal for Several decades to come, regardless of how quickly we can divest. And and the, but the opponents would argue that by doing so, it's essentially giving the uh, you know big oil uh, uh, an excuse to keep right on uh, digging, right? And so in that example, I guess it'd be interesting to hear where you come out. But also, that's an example of where there's gray area and the decision's not obvious and it really requires a level of technical analysis that I know I'm not equipped to do. So I'm just interested in, if there's, if there's so many scientists in Colorado, is, the, is that knowledge transfer occurring? Are there formal vessels for that? And is there anything we could be doing structurally to help arm you guys so that you feel more empowered to know where to put your weight behind from a policy standpoint?
1: Yeah. We should not do policies that slightly improve things but perpetuate the core of the problem. I I think it would be a mistake to focus primarily on those types of approaches. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do things that incrementally improve the problem. I think we just need to make sure we're not doing more damage than good if we put in some new policy about carbon capture, but it allows coal plants to operate for the next 100 years. Because then, you know, I mean, this is a problem where small improvements basically is the same as failure. If we know we need to get to a certain point uh, in terms of emissions uh, or else we have basically disastrous situations, getting halfway there really doesn't help much. You need to get all the way to um, avoid the major, biggest uh, ramifications. So we need to think about that where, yes, we need to make small improvements if there are opportunities, But we have to start with the huge improvements that we can make that get us a large portion of the way there if we we have any hope of getting there in the time that scientists say we have. And so, yes, carbon capture, but also shut down coal plants. And every state's going to be different. In Colorado, we have a lot of old coal plants that are nearing the end. And the question we are having is, Okay, this coal plant's expected to retire in 20 years. How do we make sure it retires in five years? What can we do to get it there? faster. And then on the one coal plant that was built, I would say very mistakenly a few years ago, what can we do to make that the cleanest coal plant in in the world? If it means that if we literally cannot shut it down, financially speaking, what can we at least do to stop some of the bleeding from that coal plant that we know is going to exist for a bit longer? But meanwhile, we have to be shutting down these other coal plants, these older ones that are emitting every single day and really don't need to be because we have the technology to replace it. I mean, that's that's the the frustrating thing, right? Is that we actually do know exactly what we need to do. We have the technology. It's not like there won't be breakthroughs, but we actually do. We, we could change everything overnight, almost. We just don't necessarily have the political courage or the will to do it. And that I don't want to say it's easy, but we could do it. We could transform our, our economy if we truly wanted to.
0: Is that one or two big moves that we don't have the political courage to do? Or is that like uh, a long tail of a ton of little things that all point the you know, help turn the big tanker in the right direction? And tanker is a bad example. So some other form of of uh, electric powered ship.
1: (laughs) Well, there 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 are. I think it's it's both. I mean, there there are a couple of big decisions we don't necessarily have the political courage to do that that we could do. Like what? Well, I mean, like literally we could say we are changing the uh, power supply. We, I mean, we have a regulated monopoly utility. So in some ways that's, that's horrible because there's no competition. And we know consumers want cleaner energy, but the, the utility really doesn't need to respond to that pressure. But on the flip side, it's like having an authoritarian government. <laughs> like China can make quick decisions and move on a dime because they just say this is what's going to happen and then it happens. Whereas in a democracy, it's sloppy and it's slow. So, if the monopoly utility model is authoritarian government, we can flip a switch and change things pretty quick. It's going to cost money, and some people are going to lose money. But if we really believe that this is the threat and the crisis that it is, it needs to be worth it.
0: So, is that a that's a mandate to the regulated utility industry? That's how that would come about structurally.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's going to be different in every state, right? How the the regulations occur and what the landscape is. But in Colorado, I mean, we have a utility that's willing to play ball for the most part, but I would say they're not going to get there fast enough. I would like them to move faster. And so, yeah, we could say, hey, you've got to shut down those coal plants the next three years. We don't care what you were planning to do. You need to make it work and you're going to take a loss. And that means your shareholders will take a loss. And maybe it will result in a little bit of an increase in rates for ratepayers. But first and foremost, we need to be okay with these large corporations that really have gotten us into this problem because they didn't see the writing on the wall and they didn't move fast enough. And if they are an investor-owned utility, there's going to have to be some pain to go around. And we have to be willing to say that and have that hard conversation. So far, we have, we've always said, yeah, we need to solve this problem. The utility needs to be a partner, but they need to be made whole and they shouldn't really suffer. Because it's not their fault; it's all of our fault. And if you're a, if you're the utility provider, it is absolutely you have a lot of blood on your hands, and you need to be part of the solution, and probably need to feel some of the pain.
0: So you mentioned before that states can move faster than the federal government, and and also how states can be. A role model, not only for other states to follow, but also kind of proof of concepts, if you will, that ultimately make their way to the federal level with enough critical mass in the states. Can you talk a bit about the tension between speed and durability?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, yeah, that, that's things can move fast at a state level, which is a good and a bad thing, right? You look at a state like, uh, I don't know, North Carolina, and maybe not around climate, but just on progressive policies, moving in the right direction. And then after one election, basically all just comes crumbling down because there's a new governor, there's a new legislature, et cetera. You have things like redistricting that if the wrong people are in charge at, at the wrong time, they can basically change the rules of the game and rig it for the next at least decade. So yeah, things, things can change quickly. They can change back quickly. They can move backwards quickly as well. And so I do think you're right. We, we need to think about the policies that we're putting in place in a way that um, can be durable. And one thing I would say is, you know, one of the biggest bills that we passed this last session was a, um, a reform of the oil and gas industry in Colorado, we're a big extraction state. And yet we also care about climate and the environment, etc. And there's this sort of kind of problem that we're facing where oil and gas, the technology has gotten better and better, but the in our population has increased and so the technology is able to access resources where we never were able to access them before. And it's right where the population is booming. So we have this problem where we have neighbors living next to oil rigs, and they never really did in the past. We clearly have to do something about this. We, we passed a comprehensive bill. It was my bill, uh, Senate Bill 181, to reform the oil and gas industry and how we do things. One thing I was thinking about was how do we do this in a way that it, it isn't just going to get changed the next, you know, when someone else is in charge. And um, because this is a big deal. We haven't changed their oil and gas laws in in about 50 years in Colorado. And everything has changed over the course of 50 years. So I wanted this to last. One of the things I kept in mind was how do you not just write a policy that can make sense and isn't just going to get, you know, deleted by the next administration or whatever, but how do you do it in a way that maybe the industry is not going to like it? I mean, they're definitely not going to like it but in a way where it's not in their interest to roll it back either. This is going to be different for every fight, but in in the oil and gas industry, so much of it is based on investment. The the number one thing that they actually want as an industry is stability. They don't want a ballot measure every year. They don't want a a, a new bill every year to change the the oil and gas regulations. They want what they had the last 50 years, where basically nothing changes for 50 years, so they can go to their investors and say, this is a safe bet. we know where our resources are. we know how to get them. Here's what we're going to do over the next thirty years to make sure these wells produce the maximum amount that you can expect and so in some ways, I wrote that bill and worked uh, with stakeholders in a way that the industry would not want to roll it back because it would just create more instability for their investors and then the investors would go to Texas or whatever so in some ways, you know you have to think about it of just not like. Who's your enemy? Who's your opposition? And how do you pound them? But how do you do it in a way where like, they're not going to be happy about it. But they're probably not going to want to roll things back if the political landscape changes overnight. And that's a really tough, tightrope to walk. But it's also about building relationships. And it's about being honest where you disagree and where you're going to diverge in major ways, but also being able to still the next day have a conversation about how to solve problems together.
0: When you look forwards at the – I mean you mentioned before I thought was really interesting that sometimes it makes sense to plow ahead and get policy in place because you feel confident that the kind of macro political landscape, if you will, is set up in a way where you can get things to the finish line. And other times it makes sense to retrench and try to spend your time on the machine itself. Right to put yourself in a more favorable position before trying anything bold. When you look at where you are today, you mentioned within Colorado there's a favorable landscape, which is great. So you'll be you know full speed ahead there. But the bigger macro landscape, we have this 2020 presidential election, of course, and then there's the House and there and there's the Senate at the at the federal level. Like, what are the hot buttons for you in terms of the most important areas that we need to focus on from the machine standpoint if we want to make meaningful progress? Mm. How much of it's wrapped up in the presidential election versus other things? And if there's other things, what are they?
1: I mean, yeah, we could, you know, we could teach a whole semester college course on this question, (laughs) right?
0: Uh,
1: That the machine is important, but also you need to strike when the iron's hot, right? And I think the Republicans have been really good at that Mm -hmm. over the last 10 years or so. But um, there are some major fundamental problems in our democratic process right now. And it would be a mistake to not go after them. But I also think you need, to, you need to think about the time horizon and how fast things can move to create the change that we're going to need. You know, I, the presidential election is incredibly important, not even just from like a, I mean, for one thing, it sets the tone, it sets the stage for basically every other political conversation and debate in America. But there is so much happening at a regulatory level that people just don't even know about that is disastrous. And and that has to do with, you know, the other day, Trump is rescinding the waiver for California for having their own uh, emission standards for cars, which actually impacts Colorado, because we adopted the same standards, things like that, that are not, frankly, things that most Americans even know are happening, but they happen because of who's in charge at the federal level. So we, we can't take our eye off of the big prize of the president, because that matters. But we need to, we do absolutely need to regain majorities in the state Senate, uh, or i mean, sorry, in the, in the U.S. Senate. And I would say that's, that's a machinery question. That's a question of how do you get into the trenches and think about which states are important and who you can move. And then, you know, I, I think we at times as progressives have lost track, we, we sometimes focus only on the machinery. And then we get the majorities and all of a sudden we're like, oh my God, what, how do we get all these huge ideas done? And then you have 2010 happen where it's a bloodbath for Democrats because they kind of weren't ready to act uh, and maybe drop the ball a little bit and couldn't do multiple things at once. And so I, we need to have a built out infrastructure for both. We need to be better about winning election, elections in the trenches. And we also need to be better about governing to prove that once they... The voters give us that opportunity to govern that we can actually
0: deliver. So, as a concerned citizen, and to any listeners that are also concerned citizens, and the odds are, given the nature of the podcast, there's probably a lot of them. How, other than just making sure to vote, what should they do? Are are there, for example, are there organizations that you think are doing a particularly good job at at working on the machine itself to um, you know to further progressive causes, or uh, are there ways that as an individual I should pick off? critical races in swing districts, for example, to support, um, or how should I think about it? How should others think about it that are concerned about this issue?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's an interesting question because there's no right answer because we need all of it, right? Like sometimes people get into these academic debates about direct action versus being the squeaky wheel uh, versus being the guy that puts on the suit and lobbies. And the answer is we need it all. One is not better than the other, but we actually do need a healthy mix of all of those options on the menu. The folks that do direct action, sometimes directed at me, right? It's frustrating at the moment, but that's what we need. I mean, they're doing their job. They are playing a critical role in the democratic process to move change. And yes, like things are not moving as fast as they would like. They're not moving as fast as I would like. And we both need to be rowing in the same direction, even if we have incredibly different ways of rowing. And so, I would say, to be honest, like the answer is you gotta—you just have to do something, and you have to do what you are most comfortable at. If you're comfortable being out there like screaming at politicians and shutting down meetings from time to time, then go for it, frankly. But if you're much more comfortable having deliberate conversations with people that you maybe don't even just dis- don't even agree with then I think you need to do that. The, the only thing you cannot do is just sit out and watch and read the New York Times every night and just hope somebody does something. That's the thing you cannot do. That is not an option right now. We need all hands on deck. And it will look different for every person. And I think it should. Some are going to create a podcast. Some are going to run for office. Some are going to blockade a street uh, for a fossil fuel divestment campaign or something. And I do actually think we need all of it. We can't let people think that this is simply just like a, a another policy problem. We need to have people on the streets creating havoc for people to realize and remember the crisis that we are facing.
0: So let's pretend it's January of 2021. And there's a Democrat in the office of the president. And they call you up and say, Senator Fenberg, we know you've been active in Colorado on, on pushing a, uh, an agenda in this area and have been successful at getting things to the finish line. So please come see me. And, you know, this is an important issue for me, but I want to know, like, what are the things I can do at the federal level that will make your life improve the most in this area? What would you tell that person?
1: what would I like the the president or the yeah, administration? yeah the new
0: president the incoming president who says yep. who turns to you for advice on what they can do at the federal level to support you and your efforts in Colorado to clean up our act as a planet
1: well I would say madam president um, <laughs> I love uh, I, I love the fact that you're in the White House and ready to do bold bold change and uh, what I would say is there are several options I mean I mean I think we need to relook at some of the failed efforts from from 2009, that got started but never got across the finish line in Congress. You know, I think we need to think about a, a national carbon tax and uh, maybe a cap and trade system, may, maybe one or the other, maybe both. But I think a carbon tax is absolutely something that we should be looking at and probably needs to happen at a federal level. And I think we, um, I think having emission reduction standards as a country, not just state by state, not just uh, one sector or another, but actually having enforceable goals that the EPA or other uh, agencies can enforce. We have air quality standards. A lot of places aren't meeting them, including Colorado. Denver does not meet the EPA air quality standards. That's a shame. So we should enforce what we already have on the books. But I think we need to have not just air quality standards, we need to have emission reduction goals that are enforceable by law. We need to actually say, this is where we want to be by such and such date, and we need every single state to have a plan, and we need to enforce those plans, and there need to be ramifications if you don't accomplish those plans. And you know, we kind of had that uh, until the 2016 election, and things started falling apart. And we need, I think, to, to just not skip a beat and need to get right back at, at picking up where we, where we left off four years ago at this point. But um, those are some of the big things we need to do immediately. We need to have CAFE standards, emission standards for cars, for vehicles, for power plants. We need to take aggressive action at a federal level and empower the states to do it and make sure that they are not getting waivers left and right uh, for implementing those plans, but that they actually have to accomplish them uh, in a very short time horizon.
0: So one one final thread I wanted to talk to you about, which is just that uh, you, we've talked a lot in this podcast about the role of government and what's happening at the state level, what's happening at the federal level. Uh, but if you look bigger picture at the climate problem, one thing we haven't talked about is the market and is the role of capitalism overall and whether capitalism in its current form is... Uh, the right vehicle to carry our economy forward into the next chapter, uh, or if there's any tweaks we need to made to live in more harmony with the natural resources that our civilization and species and all living, you know, all life forms on this planet are, are are built upon. So is that a topic you've thought much about? And and if so, I'd love to hear how you think about that.
1: So the topic you're asking about is the end of capitalism? <laughs>
0: I guess I'm Um, asking you got, I, I I mean, I want to know, we've talked a lot about government's role, but like, what is the role role of the, of the business community other than just to do as they're told?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, it's a good question. I think the market, the business community innovators absolutely need to be playing a role, but I think the government absolutely has a role to play to encourage that. So, yes, there are some things where the government needs to use the the power of the government and tell some of these sectors what to do. And we need to regulate them and we need to um, get their emissions under control. I think that is a fundamental role of the government, right, is regulate to ensure that everyone is acting in a way that protects, frankly, public health, really, in a lot of ways. So, yes, the government needs to play that regulator role. But the government also can play a role of saying, you know, this is the direction we want to move in. So what can we do as a government to incentivize the market to go there faster? And there are all kinds of things. I mean, I mean, the government has played a role in in incentives for electric vehicles, and I think that has been uh, enormously helpful. It doesn't mean the government is saying everyone all of a sudden now overnight has to only create electric vehicles, but there was something that the government did that created a, a jumpstart for that industry. And I think more of that, absolutely. Needs to happen. I don't think we should shy away from incentives and for government intervention in the market in order to make sure the market moves where we as a society want it to move because markets aren't perfect. We also, I think, when we get into this academic debate, we often talk about like the market will solve the problem. In some of these areas, we don't have a market, right? Regulated monopolies are not a market, it is essentially a for profit company blessed by the government to be a monopoly. And so maybe there are some areas where we need to get out of the business of being involved, such as the utility industry and say, you know what? This is a model that worked 100 years ago. We clearly have bigger problems on our hands. And frankly, government probably can't solve it in this structure. And so, yeah, I think we probably do need to break up monopoly utilities and say the market needs to go to town and compete. And we are in a place where we think Consumers actually want cleaner energy, not just because it's clean, but also it's cheaper. You know, per kilowatt hour, it is cheaper. So there are areas where the government's actually in the way because it's not willing to give up these old models. And and I actually think the market or a version of a market can solve that problem. And we're seeing that in some states and not in others.
0: Well, you mentioned that clean energy is cheaper, which brings up an interesting thorny topic, which is that... If you look at the emissions of, let's say, coal or natural gas versus something like nuclear, which is zero emissions, then I think investing in nuclear would help us get off of coal and natural gas much more quickly. Um, at the same time, though, uh, I think critics, you know, one thing they talk a lot about is that nuclear just can't be competitive from a cost standpoint, at least at that at a point in time snapshot today. So. Is the crisis such that we should put economics aside and do anything and everything to get to zero emissions, whether the math works or not? Or should we only invest in things that where from a market standpoint, they, they win other than pricing the externality of, of, uh, of carbon emission?
1: Well, I, I think it's a good question. I don't think price should be the only thing, but I think we should use it when it's to our advantage, to be totally honest. I mean, if the price of sun, of solar is cheaper than coal or whatever, then- by all means, we should exploit that to create more solar. Now, some, as you would say, as you were saying, would say, well, nuclear theoretically is even cheaper. So why aren't we incentivizing or going after that? And the reality is, is if we truly have 10 years, 12 years, whatever you want to say it is, getting a nuclear plant up and running is at least 20 years, maybe 25, maybe 30. And, and depending on the political and regulatory environment it could be longer. So maybe nuclear is something we should throw on the on the table to discuss, but it's not something that could be turned around fast. And so that's one reason why I don't think it's worth a lot of our time to be um, discussing in terms of policymakers. But also people don't want a nuclear plant in their backyard. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just not something that I think people will welcome with open arms. And third, we have alternatives that don't create problems like solar, like wind, storage. Why would we potentially solve a problem by creating another problem down the road, such as dealing with the nuclear waste or a potential um, health impact of, of something going wrong? I think if we know what the right solution is, and I think in some ways throwing nuclear out there as a discussion can be used as a tactic just to confuse people and to slow things down. And I would say if we know what the answer is, we know what the cleanest possible solution is, we do know it's cost effective or at least uh, competitive. There's really no rational reason to not go after it. Full steam ahead.
0: So I guess my last question is, I mean, obviously climate is only one issue and, and people need to look at the full picture when they're figuring out who to vote for in the presidential campaign. But there's this whole stack of Democratic candidates. And I mean, all of them are better than What's currently in office, but I guess what tips do you have for someone that is coming at it like me from a very climate motivated place, where it's not my only issue, but I care a lot about it and do believe it's an existential crisis? Everyone's using the same words or a lot of the same words when they talk about what needs to happen. So, what advice do you have for how to how to translate as a regular voter to try to figure out who is going to actually be poised to have the biggest impact, assuming they can take office. And, and, and I guess related to that is the difference between who has the boldest ideas, but also the ability to actually get them into place. Because if someone has the strongest platform, but the weakest execution once they're in office, then it's not going to do us any good either. So I guess, how do you think about that trade-off and go about figuring out where to, where to put your chips?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, like you said, it's kind of like well, it all would be leaps and bounds better than where we are right now. But but you're right. I mean, we we can't just settle for not Trump. We need we need to make sure we're doing it right because this is probably, frankly, our last opportunity to, to do the right thing, get on the right path. I think in some ways, it's not just the talking points that they talk about, but who are they? What are their concrete solutions that they have that they're offering and willing to put their shoulder into and really get done? And then also, who are they going to hire to execute? I think one of, I think Obama had some of the best and the brightest people um, around him. He was willing to bring on people that were contrarians, that didn't agree with him on everything. I think that made him a better president. But he also embraced science in a very real way. And so who, who, you know, ask a candidate or whatever, who's going to be their chief person in charge of the climate crisis? And they should have an answer for that. Who's the team that they're going to put together? What are the first things they would do within their their uh, 100 days in office? What are the concrete things they will do, and who's going to execute those plans?
0: My last question is a personal one, which is just that you talked about having gray hair and needing to maybe you know move on and find a next adventure that led you to to the state senate. But I mean, from my seat, you're a pretty young guy, and you're obviously <laughs> you're obviously ambitious, and so when you look at the future, I guess, like, you know, where, where do you th- uh, hope to have your biggest impact long term over the, you know, the, the long mm-hmm. arc of your career?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I'm 35. I'll be 36 soon. Uh, I have a baby on the way. Uh, Congrats. In a months.
0: Very exciting.
1: Yeah, it's exciting and um, incredibly scary. <laughs> but um,
0: Nothing changes. You know, don't worry about it. Hey, hey, yeah, really yeah. yeah. Right. After
1: we just talked about <laughs> doom and gloom for an hour. Um, you know, I, I don't know where I go next. I'm actually still in my first term. So I, I, I'm up for re-election in 20, or 2020 and could do another four years after that through 2024. Um, I'm planning to run for re-election, but we'll see, right? I mean, like, as I said before, Politics is almost 100% timing. And um, if an opportunity arises where I think I can have a bigger impact, um, I'll take it in a heartbeat. That's not to say I don't love what I'm doing, but I don't see my, my job as advancing my own political career or myself or my image. Um, I never wanted to be an elected official. Sometimes I'm pretty uncomfortable doing it or still. And so I'm not you know, ruling out running for office again uh, in the future, but it's not my plan. I'm not making votes, and I never want to be someone who goes to the legislature every day and looks about, looks through the lens of how is this vote going to help me in my run for Congress. I think that is what's wrong with politics in a lot of ways, and so I don't want to do that. I mean, my role is in a lot of ways is I'm I'm an activist, and I try to create as much change as I can on the issues I care about. And that may be running for office again, but it may not be. And, And I'm definitely not in this to be a politician for the rest of my life. My wife absolutely doesn't want me to do that. So uh, eventually, uh, I won't have a choice. But um, I want to do what I can do to to create the most change that could be running for office, it could be staying in the state legislature for another several years, Uh, it could be working in a cabinet or uh, an organization. And so I, I, you know, in some ways, it's scary, because I have no idea what the hell comes next. Uh, in another way, it's incredibly exciting. and I, and i I kind of like the idea of being a free agent and just seeing what opportunities come my way
0: and for anyone listening that just wants to see that that uh, that resonates with uh, with how you think about things and and your you know how how you're going about things in office and wants to see more candidates cut out of your cloth representing them wherever they are in the country, how do we make that happen?
1: How do we make uh,
0: how do we get more we get ca- more people? How do we get more people that are cut out of your type of cloth uh, into elected seats in whatever capacity?
1: Well, I think for some of you, it means you should run for office. A lot of people don't think of themselves as someone who ever would do that. I didn't. Um, And it doesn't mean you have to run for state legislature. You can run for a city council or a county commission seat or something like that. But um, I think more importantly, it's also not about not everyone should run for office, but everybody probably knows someone that should and I think, you know, sometimes when, when election season is, is around the corner, it's good to sort of do an inventory of who's in your life. And, and a lot of times people won't ever run for office just because they want to run for office. But somebody needs to ask them to do it. And I think that's true for people of color. I think it's true for underrepresented groups, for women. Sometimes they need to be asked and sort of pushed into it a little bit. But I think it's true for everybody. And so if there's somebody in your life, there's someone, you know, a scientist or someone who's just has a good head on their shoulders and has the right heart and the right direction, maybe you should ask them if they want to run for office and they're probably going to say, hell no. (laughs) But maybe then you get somebody else to ask them also and you sort of put the pressure on and get them to realize that they could be a leader, even if they're not the best public speaker, even if they're not necessarily an expert. Those are the types of people sometimes that I think make the best elected officials They're not the people that will always go on to run for Congress and then maybe run for president. But we don't need more of those people. That's for sure. Uh, We have plenty of those types of politicians. We need people that are just simply doing it for the right reason. There are people that, you know, the old saying is that run for office to be somebody. And then there are people that do it to do something. And we need more people that are wanting to do something. And I think that means people from all walks of life need to, to get in there. And then when they do get in there, you need to support them. Um, you need to dig deep and write them a check. You need to host a house party. You need to reach out to them. And if you're a scientist, offer to be their science advisor. So I, I think there are all kinds of roles people can play. Some should run for office. Not everyone should. But most importantly, identify those people that are, that want to do something rather than be somebody and encourage them to get involved in a more meaningful way.
0: Well, this has been a, a long, winding, comprehensive discussion. Is, is there? Anything I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners?
1: Um, You know, I don't think so. I think really like the parting words are, um, we have seen the last couple of years that fear is contagious, that conspiracy theories are contagious. Um, But I think we also have to remember that hope is also contagious. And, you know, there's only one clear way that we are guaranteed to fail. And that is if we give up hope. And maybe the odds are against us even, I'll be honest. But I think if you have hope and you and you and you dig in, I think there's a real chance that we can solve this and, and come out ahead. But the only way to do it is if we work together and actually keep that hope alive and look for solutions. So the last thing people should be doing is giving up their hope and giving into the fear that's out there right now.
0: Well, Senator Fenberg, thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you so much for working so hard to represent our interests as well. I'm really inspired by the work you're doing and by your outlook. And personally, I I hope that there's more elected officials like you that are representing us in whatever capacity. So uh, I found this discussion really great. Well, thank you.
1: I appreciate that. And thanks for having me.
0: Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, Please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you.